We're going to pick it up this morning, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning here at verse 12. We read, And immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist. And he did it not because he was a sinner who needed to be cleansed from his sin, not because he needed to demonstrate repentance or confession of sin in his own life. Jesus was baptized, first of all, to identify with sinful man, to say, I'm one of you. All men need to go in and and be baptized, and even though I do not need to be so personally, I want to identify with sinful man, just as Jesus did when he was born, just as Jesus did when he died on the cross. His baptism was a way that he identified with sinful man. It was also a way in which he could be identified by man. Because when Jesus was baptized, the heavens parted, and a voice spoke from the sky, the voice of God the Father, speaking from heaven itself, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came and uh, came upon Jesus, appearing as in the form of a dove. Pretty heavy spiritual experience, right? If that were to happen to you or I, if somebody in the baptism that we're just going to do this afternoon, there they go into the water, and when they come up, the heavens part, a voice echoes from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I think that person would be pretty pumped up. They'd be pretty excited. That'll give you a spiritual high. And in the midst of this spiritual high, what happens with Jesus? Well, look at verse 12, and immediately, right? We're seeing this in the Gospel of Mark. Everything happens immediately, doesn't it? And immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That ancient Greek word translated drove there is a very strong word. It means to cast out, to push forward, to compel. The Spirit compelled Jesus to go in the wilderness. Not because Jesus was unwilling to go. No, he was willing to go. But simply because there was such an urgency about him going into the wilderness. And as Jesus goes into the wilderness, he's driven into the wilderness. So you go from this glorious spiritual high immediately out into the wilderness. And what does God have for him out in the wilderness? Well, look at verse 13. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Just as Jesus was identified with sinners in his baptism, now he's going to identify with sinners in temptation. And Jesus was tempted, not just three temptations. We read in the Gospels of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, three specific temptations that came to Jesus during this time, and how Jesus answered every one of those temptations with the word of God. And he defeated the lies and the deceptions of the devil with the truth from the word of God. But you shouldn't think that Jesus was only faced with three temptations during this time. No, during the entire 40-day period, he was tempted over and over again. Perhaps Satan was trying to find this weak spot and to see if there was that weak spot in the Son of God. And he tried and tried and poked and prodded spiritually, so to speak, and he couldn't find a thing. But, you know, Jesus was tempted, as the Bible says, in all points, in all points, even as you and I, He was checked out in every way possible, tested in every way you could imagine. Yet he was without sin in all of his temptations. Some people think that Jesus really couldn't be tempted like we are. And I agree, he couldn't be. Jesus, he was the Son of God. He's God the Son. 
God in the flesh, how can God be tempted? How can God be solicited to evil? No, Jesus' temptations, they were not like ours. They were much, much worse. You see, we are tempted up to our breaking point, right? And then you crush and you fall under the temptation, and then you're not tempted anymore. The temptation fades. Jesus never fell. The weight of temptation kept piling on and on and on. And there was never the release of temptation by giving into it. As well, the Bible tells us that God will never tempt us or never allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. Isn't that a beautiful promise from the Lord in the book of 1 Corinthians? You're never going to be tempted beyond what you're able. I know sometimes it feels like it, but that's just a feeling. The truth of God's word is, is that you'll never be tempted beyond what you're able. Well, don't you think that where we're able and where Jesus is able, is that a much different point? Friends, the temptations that Jesus felt were much worse than you and I will ever feel. So it wasn't the same. It was more intense. It was more difficult. It was more of a stand that Jesus made for righteousness. But he came out spotlessly. And so Jesus knows what it's like when you undergo temptation. He knows what it's like when you feel the crush of temptation in your soul. When you're enticed to do evil, Jesus knows what it's like, and that's why you can go to him. You can pour out your heart to prayer in, in prayer to him in a time of temptation. He knows, he sympathizes, and he wants to strengthen you in the midst of it. Now, how do we know that Jesus came through this sinless? Actually, there's two subtle things in the text right in front of us that tell us this. First of all, verse 13, it says, He was there in the wilderness, 40 days tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. You say, well, how does that tell us that he came through it sinless? Well, it's interesting because in the original ancient Greek grammar of this construction, there's a very strong and clear emphasis on the word with. He was with the wild beasts. And what does that mean? Well, it means he was there in companionship with them. In other words, it's not like Jesus was with the wild beasts and he had to fight off lions and kung fu kick leopards and you know, protect himself from wild beasts that were constantly attacking him. No. It means he was there at peace with the wild beasts during these 40 days of temptation. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus was like the second Adam, like an unfallen Adam. You remember, before the fall, Adam was at complete peace, complete harmony with the natural order and with the created beasts. I believe that, that animals, they, they don't have anything against an unfallen man. So the next time your dog growls at you, let it be evidence to you. We're fallen people, but Jesus wasn't, and he remained unfallen. The wild beasts were there. He's in communion and fellowship, so to speak, with them. He remained unfallen, the sinless one, despite all the temptation, with authority over the wild beasts. And then we're also told in verse 13 that the angels ministered to him. And the sense in Mark here is that the angels ministered to Jesus at the end of this time of intense temptation. This shows Jesus' authority not only over the wild beasts, but also over the angels. They were his servants. And he remained the sinless, spotless Son of God, morally victorious, the, the, the master of creation. And even the angels serve him. Through these 40 days of testing and temptation, Jesus never fell once. Now, friends, that's moral authority, isn't it? To, to be tempted and to go through it and not give in to the temptation, it, it gives you a sense of, of strength in the Spirit. 
moral authority. Jesus had it. Now look at what happens, verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee. Now I wish we could throw a map up on the wall and I could show you the geography of of this land that we're speaking about in the Bible. Maybe I could explain it to you and make the picture clear enough. The, The Holy Land or the land of Israel as it is today, in the time of Jesus, it was divided into three sections. Starting from the south, there was the southernmost section of Judea. That was the section around the city of Jerusalem and the larger area around it, Judea. And this was the Bible Belt. This is where the holiest people lived because they wanted to be close to Judea and a strong and committed and vibrant Jewish community. Then north of Judea, you had the region of Samaria. Now, in Samaria, you had the Samaritans living there, and the Samaritans had a a very long-standing bad relationship with the Jewish people. The Jewish people looked at the Samaritans and regarded them as compromising half-breeds, as as the worst kind of of traitors to, to the Jewish people, and so they didn't get along well with the Samaritans at all. So you had Judea, Samaria, and then north of Samaria, you had the region of Galilee. It's this beautiful hilly, uh, green, marvelously fertile area surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Now, this was a mixed area. It had a large Gentile population. It had a large Jewish population to be Gentile villages and then predominantly Jewish villages. Highly populated area and an area that, that was mixed in its population. Jesus came from this area. The city of Nazareth was in the area of Galilee. And this is where Jesus did most of his ministry. And so he comes to this region, the region of Galilee, verse 16, as he walked, excuse me, verse 14, and as John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, look at what he did there, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, well, Jesus was a preacher. Did you notice that? That's what he did. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He brought a message of God's rule on earth. The kingdom's here. I'm the king. Let's get under the rule of God. Let's get under his kingdom. Here we go. The kingdom of God is here. Now, what's very interesting about this is that the Jewish people of Jesus' day wanted the kingdom of God. Oh, did they want the kingdom of God. They wanted it so bad they could almost taste it. And Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God. You'd think you'd have a perfect match. Here's a group that wants the kingdom of God. Here's a man who's bringing the message of the kingdom of God. It should go together perfectly, right? Well, it didn't. Do you know why? Because when Jesus said the kingdom of God, he meant one thing. And when the population of Israel thought about the kingdom of God, they expected or desired something else. It's kind of like if you've ever been to a Mexican restaurant in a place where they don't have Mexican restaurants. You go in there and and you order the enchilada plate and you think, oh man, I love enchiladas, it'll be great. And you go there and you think, what is this? You know, the sauce isn't right, the tortillas aren't right, the beans aren't right, the the rice isn't right, and the inside of the enchiladas. Other than that, it's a great meal. You see, what's in your mind when you think of an enchilada plate and what's in the restaurant's mind, it's two different things, right? 
Well, when Jesus said kingdom of God, he meant a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that would come and change men's life and that Jesus would come and reign as king in our lives. And he was raising up a spiritual kingdom and the spiritual kingdom would reign in the hearts of men and women who gave their lives to following Jesus Christ. When the Jewish people of Jesus' day desired the kingdom of God, they wanted a king who would come and kick out the Romans because they hated the Roman oppression. They wanted a political kingdom. They wanted a political revolution. And Jesus is saying, I'll bring you a revolution, all right, but it's going to be a revolution of the inner man, a revolution of the spirit, where I'm going to assemble my kingdom one heart at a time by changed lives who are given over to the message of this kingdom. That's not what they were anticipating. You see, contrary to the expectations of most people in Jesus' day, he brought a kingdom of love, not of subjugation, a kingdom of grace, not of law, a kingdom of humility, not of pride, a kingdom that was for all men, not just the Jewish people, and a kingdom that was to be received voluntarily by man, not imposed by someone else. And so that was the message that Jesus preached. Now, I want you to see something that that throughout the book of Mark, the emphasis is going to be on what Jesus did, on his marvelous miracles, on all the incredible things that Jesus did. But Mark begins his description of the ministry of Jesus by saying that he went all around preaching the kingdom of God. And it's as if Mark is trying to explain this to you. He's trying to explain, I'm going to tell you about all these things Jesus did, but don't miss the picture. What Jesus really was, was a preacher. He was a preacher who preached the kingdom of God and went around doing great works. In other words, Jesus was a preacher who did wonderful miracles. He was not a miracle worker who occasionally preached. And so here he is. Here's his message. Did you notice it in verse 15? Look at what his message was. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, when Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, he first wanted people to know that it was near, that the time was at hand. Do you want to know how near the kingdom of God is? It's at hand. It's as near as your hand. You can put your hand as far away from you want, and it's still not very far away, right? Well, Jesus said, that's how close the kingdom of God is. It's here. It's now. It isn't as distant. It isn't as dreamy as you've imagined. Now is the time for you to encounter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the time is fulfilled. Now's the time. It's the strategic time. It's the time of opportunity. Don't let it pass you by. The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, well, great, Jesus. So what do I have to do? I want to come into this kingdom. Tell me what I must do. He says, well, first of all, look at it there, verse 15. Repent. Oh, wait a minute, I thought that was John the Baptist's message. It was, but it's Jesus' message as well. You know, you can't come to the kingdom of God unless you repent. I wouldn't say that you have to repent before you come to the kingdom of God. I would say repentance describes what coming to the kingdom of God is like. Repent means to turn around. To stop the direction you're going, to have a change of mind, a change of direction. Now, all of us, because we're fallen sons and daughters of Adam, all of us are born going in the wrong way. And if we keep going that way, we'll never reach the kingdom of God. So for us to go to the kingdom of God, we have to stop and turn around. It's that simple. That's what repentance is. 
Now, again, it's not so much describing what you have to do before you come to the kingdom of God. It describes what coming to the kingdom of God is like. If you're in Los Angeles and you need to go to New York, and the boss calls you up from New York and he says, I need you in New York immediately, and hangs up the phone. He didn't have to tell you, okay, I want you to leave Los Angeles and then come to New York. It's inherent within it, right? So friends, come to the kingdom of God means repent. Because you've got to leave the direction you were going to come to the kingdom of God. And so the first word of the gospel is repent. But that's not the only word. Look at what he says in verse 15. And believe in the gospel. Believe in it. You see, when Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, he wanted them to know what it was like to live in the kingdom. And it's not just about a moral renewal. It's not just about turning over a new leaf. It's about trusting God, taking him at his word, and living a life of dependence upon him. That's what the word believe means. It doesn't just mean believe about the gospel or believe some facts about the gospel. It means to put your trust in the gospel, to put your reliance upon it. Repent. And believe in the gospel. That was Jesus' great message. And so here he is, going around all the villages, around Galilee. And this was his message, expanding upon it greatly, of course, preaching the kingdom of God, saying that it's near, saying that we need to repent, saying that we need to believe in the gospel. And look at what happens. Jesus says, well, I need some help doing this. So verse 16, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Now, one of the great and useful things about reading the Bible and comparing Scripture with Scripture is you get a much fuller understanding of these things. We know from the Gospel of John that this was not the first time that Jesus met these men. You might think so just reading the account here in Mark. But John tells us that Jesus met these men almost a year before this time. So they knew of Jesus before. They had heard Jesus' teaching before. But now Jesus says, now's the time you follow me. You come be my disciple. I mean, you know about me. We've met. We've had some conversation, but now is the time for you to come and follow me. And so when Jesus is looking for followers, where did he look? I know where I'd look. I'd say, well, first of all, you know, I'm doing a spiritual thing. I'm going to go down to seminary and get me some top-flight theological candidates. That's what I need. Some real brainy guys, because people come up with hard questions, and I want some guys that can handle that. Then I'd say, you know, we need the public relations department. I'll get some guys who are really good speakers, and they'd be my front men here, my, my public relations guys. And then I'd say, you know, this is going to be expensive. I need somebody to write the checks. So I'm going to get some guys with fat wallets and really loaded with dough, and I'll make them followers of me, and, you know, we'll kind of we'll work something out there. And finally, I'd say, you know what? This can be a dangerous business. I'm going to get some big guys, some bodyguard type guys, because, you know, they could kill you in what I'm doing here. I want to get some guys who can really protect me. And see, Jesus didn't think like that at all, did he? What did he do? He went and I got fishermen, common men, no theological credentials, no status in the world. And he met them as they were laboring like any common man. These men were chosen by Jesus, not for who they were, but for what Jesus could do through them. He says, you, come, follow me. You're a fisherman. That's fine. Come, follow me. 
Be a follower of me. Friends, isn't that, isn't that what being a Christian is all about? At its very root, at its very essence, Christianity isn't about theological systems or rules or even helping people. It's about following Jesus. Now, when you follow Jesus, he'll give you a theological system. When you follow Jesus, he'll, he'll give you a, a way to live your life. He'll show you how to help people. But it all comes back to following Jesus. When I speak to the young people in our church, and speak to them about them having their own relationship with Jesus Christ, because it's a, it's a significant thing, isn't it? When a young person grows up, and they try to make that transition between mom and dad's faith and their faith in Jesus Christ. It's an important and not always an easy transition. I don't talk to, the, to our young people about being Christians. I try not to use that word. I don't say you need to be a Christian. Because I think they've probably heard that word ever since they, they were, they were you know, two feet tall. And over and over again, they've heard it every Sunday at Sunday school. Be a Christian, be a Christian. I, I want to talk to them in a different term. I ask them, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Can people tell that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? I mean, after all, could, could somebody come and in your life, if we hired a private detective and they tailed you for a week and they made a report and they looked at your life in and out, could they look at your life and with the report they submit say, this person is a follower of Jesus Christ. I can tell it by the way they live. Well, by what they say, I can tell they're a follower of Jesus Christ. By what they do, by how they relate to people, by, by what they watch, by how they live their lives, they're a follower of Jesus Christ. Or is it possible that some of us, we just kind of say we're Christians? We just kind of say we're followers of Jesus, but it isn't real in our lives. Well, Jesus wouldn't allow that. You come follow me, he says. And he says, what will happen? I will make you, look at there, verse 17, I will make you become fishers of men. If these men received something in following Jesus, he says, I want you to give it to somebody else. I want you to catch them and bring them into it. I'll make you fishers of men. You'll attract other men too. You know what I think is great about this is that when Jesus called them to be fishers of men, he called them to do what he did. I mean, was there ever a greater fisher of men than Jesus himself? No, he was a, he's the greatest fisherman of men of all time. And he said, I want you to do what I do. That's what ministry is about. Seeing what Jesus does and then doing it. He wanted others, and so he started with these four, and then he picked 12, and then hundreds, and then thousands upon thousands upon thousands through the centuries. Jesus has said, I want you to come, and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus wants to make you a fisher of men. He wants you to catch other people for the kingdom of God. Now, you ever seen those fishing shows on television? They're kind of fun, and then they're not fun. They're fun because you, you see these guys, and they always go to these spectacular locations where huge fish are like jumping into the boat virtually. <laughs> I mean, they're like having to beat the fish off with the oars just to protect themselves. <laughs> and four or five times through the show, they, they show these, these massive trout, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And they're like, yeah, you know, like this is my fourth one today, you know, and we'll throw this one back too. They're fun to watch, but at the same time, you go, man, it's never like that when I fish. And, and... Now, you could watch fishing shows all day long on television, but it's another thing altogether than to go out and fish, right? Isn't that how it is in some of our Christian lives? 
We come to church and we watch a fishing show. We talk to other people, we watch a fishing show. Jesus says, I want you to be a fisher of men. Well, how do I do it? I don't know how. What, what can happen? To my... Follow me. Follow me. And look, I love this. In verse 17, come after me and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus said, you just come after me and I'll do it in your life. It's not like you have to go out and enroll in a fisher of men class. You just come after Jesus, follow after him, and he will make you become this. If you're not being a fisher of men, then the problem is that you're not following after Jesus Christ exactly as you should. Maybe not as closely, but if you do, he'll work in your life, and he'll make you become a fisher of men. That's how he said he would work. Look at how it continues here. Verse 21. I love verse 21 through the verse we're going to conclude with today, verse 34. The remainder of our time together, we'll consider verses 21 through 34. It describes a very busy day that Jesus had in Galilee. Do you want to spend a day with Jesus? Here we go. Let's start in the morning. Jesus went to church. Verse 21. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So what did Jesus do in this morning in this region of Galilee, city of Capernaum? Well, first he goes in and he goes to the synagogue and they asked him to teach. They would very commonly ask a distinguished visitor or teacher, well, come and teach. And he said, well, fine, I'll teach. And they were astonished at his teaching. Now, we're not told what he taught, but we're told of the effect that it had on the audience. They were astonished. They had never heard anybody teach quite like this before. And what was the difference in Jesus' teaching? If you notice, they say that he taught with authority, not as the scribes. You see, the scribes of Jesus' day rarely taught boldly. They'd often just sort of throw out a passage of Scripture and they'd say, well, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says this about this passage, and Rabbi this and that says this about the passage, and and Rabbi uh, this and there says this about the passage. You kind of go, yeah, well, what does it mean? Well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that, and Rabbi this and that says the other. Well, what what, what does it mean? Well, then they just go back to the rabbis all the time. It's kind of like, you know, those, those... Two-handed preachers. On the one hand, they'd say it says this, and then they always say, but on the other hand, it could mean that. He said, this is what it says. This is the word of God. And they were amazed at his authority. Now, let let me give you a little pointer here. If you want to be a good teacher in whatever you teach, and maybe it's in your Sunday school class, maybe maybe it's in a a, uh, ladies' Bible study, maybe it's in a home group, maybe it's in some other place where God will have you teach. If you want to teach effectively for the Lord, you have to learn how to teach with authority, not with arrogance. Nobody likes listening to an arrogant teacher, but you need to learn how to teach with authority. And what did Jesus do that, that gave his teaching authority? Well, first of all, Jesus taught with authority because he really had authority. He brought a divine message, and he was confident that it was from God. Now, he wasn't quoting from man, but he was quoting from God. When I teach the Bible, I feel like I have the authority of God. Now, when I'm talking about my own opinions, with my own theories, with my own speculations, I feel like, look, you can take it or leave it. I don't want to do very much of it because I don't want to waste your time with that. But when I'm teaching the Word of God, well, it's not me, it's the Word of God. And so I can teach it with authority because I believe that what God says is true. Here's the authority of God's Word. Let's just come and bring our lives to it. So Jesus taught with authority because he really had authority. Secondly, Jesus taught with authority because he knew what he was talking about. When you know your material, when you know what you're talking about, you can speak with authority on it. 
Now, this is the problem for some of us when we're leading that Bible study, when we're teaching the children upstairs. You're like, well, and then Moses went, or wait, was it Noah or Moses? Um, well, it was one of those guys, and then he built a boat, or was it he went across the Red Sea? Well, it had something to do with water, and then he... <laughs> you get the idea, right? Look, if you don't know what you're talking about, people can smell that in a minute, can't they? And you have no authority. I mean, why should they listen to you if you don't know what you're talking about? Well, Jesus knew what he was talking about. You know, it's wonderful to find what people know about and get them to talk about it. You have somebody, he's an expert at what he does in his job. He's a computer expert. Here's somebody else. They know everything about business. They know everything about finance. And here's someone else. They they know everything about sewing or cooking. Or there's somebody else. They know everything about tying dry flies for fishing or whatever it can be. You find out what that person is an expert in, and you know what? They can talk all day long about it, can't they? They don't need notes. They don't need preparation. They can talk all day long because they're an expert in it. Well, friends, when you know God's word that well, you can talk about it. You can talk about it with authority. So Jesus taught with authority because he knew what he was talking about. But thirdly, Jesus taught with authority because he believed what he taught. Friends, you've got to believe it. If you don't believe in what you're teaching... I mean, if you don't believe that this is the word of God and that it makes the difference and that this is what's important, then just get down from that pulpit. Let somebody else who does believe it speak to them. Because people can tell, can't they? Even when they can't put their finger on it, they can tell when the teacher believes what he's teaching. So I think those things will help anybody who wants to be a better teacher. Number one, you need to have the authority because you're bringing a divine message. You're teaching what God says. Secondly, you've got to know what you're talking about. And third, you've got to believe what you're teaching. And Jesus had authority in his teaching for that reason. Now you want to see how much authority he had, not just in his teaching, but in his person. Here Jesus is in church, and this is still in the morning of this Sabbath day. Verse 23, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. There's Jesus shaking hands, you know, at the, at the service, at the end, you know, greeting everybody, and the message is great, everybody's amazed, he teaches with authority, he's saying hi to people, and all of a sudden, this man has an outburst, he's possessed with a demon. We don't know how the demon got in there. We believe that, that the scriptures tell us that, that you've you got to extend an invitation to a demon somehow, either consciously or unconsciously, an exposure to things such as spiritism, astrology, or occult practices, or the taking of drugs. They're dangerous. They open doors to the demonic, which should better be left closed. And friends, here, here this man had an unclean spirit, and it had dominated his life. He didn't even speak for himself. The demon cried out from within him. And he cries out. He says the truth about Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't stand back and say, well, tell me more. That's interesting what you would say. No, Jesus instantly recognized this man was demon-possessed. And he had to deal with it. Verse 26, or excuse me, verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. When the unclean spirit had convulsed and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him, and then all were amazed that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Wasn't that amazing? Here the, the, the demon shows itself, and Jesus, he's not having any of it. He's just going to cast that demon out. So just rebuke the demon. And he said, Be quiet and come out of him. I think there's... there's very interesting thing about this when we understand the life and the world that Jesus lived in. 
Did you know that exorcists were not unique in Jesus' day? There were a lot of people out there who were trying to deliver people who were afflicted from demonic spirits. And so it wasn't unusual that Jesus would, would, would try to deliver this. It wasn't unusual. It wasn't the way that Jesus did it. See, in the ancient world, and we, we even have this from ancient writings, oh, elaborate ceremonies, a special ring with a special root applied to the ring, waved under the man's nose, and the demon would come out through the nose, and then they would have a pail of water, and he'd come in and knock the pail of water over, so we know that the demons left the man, and this magic spell, and this incantation, oh, so forth and so on, so on. all a bunch of hocus-pocus, superstitious stuff. Jesus wouldn't have any of it. You want to know what Jesus' ceremony was for casting out a demon? Be quiet and come out of him. Shut up and get out, is basically what Jesus said. He didn't want to talk to the demon. He didn't want to hear from the demon. Be quiet and get out of him. Friends, that's authority. Jesus has authority over demonic spirits. You know, there's not a single person in this room who, who needs to feel oppressed by demonic spirits. Jesus Christ can set you free from that. You don't need to feel harassed. Now, friends, I believe, and I believe very strongly, that a Christian cannot be possessed. They cannot have their actions controlled by a demonic spirit. Nor can a Christian uh, have a demonic spirit upon them in a way that they cannot resist the devil, and he would flee from them. But, friends, we all know that demonic spirits can oppress and harass and attack Christians. And there's not a single reason in the world why any one of you should live under this cloud of demonic oppression, demonic uh, difficulty here. Jesus Christ has authority to cast it out. So what do you do? You, you come and, and you pray. You, you enlist other people with you. Say, help me. The Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Will you come? Will you help me resist the devil? Will you come and, and uh, pray and that the authority of Jesus would cast this demon out? I, I don't want any difficulty anymore. And again, not that the demon's entrenched within you, but it's oppressing you. It's, it's harassing you. It's bothering you. It's Jesus Christ has all authority over demonic spirits. There's nothing that a Christian needs to fear from the demonic realm. Be wary of, yes. It's not something to trifle with. But to fear? No, Jesus Christ has the authority. Then here, look at verse 29. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her up by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus comes, and this is the afternoon. It was after church, and he goes, and he hears that Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, Peter was married, and his wife's uh, uh, mother was sick, and he goes in there. Now, what's very interesting is that we know exactly what this disease was. It was sort of a, a form of malaria that they had in this marshy area around the Sea of Galilee. And there they are, and she has this. And did you know that the ancient rabbis gave specific ceremonies by which you could heal a person from this malady? And again, they're all very superstitious. They're all very involved. I mean, you go through the whole thing, and or you take a knife that's completely made of iron, and then you tie it up with a braid of hair, and then you tie it to a thorn bush, and then on three successive days, you read three successive passages of Scripture, and after the third day, Jesus, the, the person would be healed, and Jesus says, well, forget it. I don't want to wait around three days. What does Jesus do? Here's his ceremony. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. That's authority. No superstition, no hocus-pocus, no, no uh, magical ceremony. It's the authority of Jesus there to heal. And he heals her, and then she served them. Isn't it beautiful? 
It's just the simple, there, power of Jesus. Look at how it ends here, verse 32. That was a busy day, don't you think? But it's not over yet. Now at evening, when the sun had set, they brought brought to him uh, all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Isn't that amazing? You see, the day had ended. Now it was a Sabbath day, and people were restricted in how far they could travel on the Sabbath. But in the Jewish day, it begins at nightfall. And so as soon as four stars were visible in the sky, the rabbi said, well, it's the next day now. And so people said, well, great, we can go to Jesus. He heals people. He casts demons out of people. And so people came who were afflicted. And that says the whole city was gathered together at his door. You know, the, you can imagine just the throngs of onlookers. This is exciting. They want to see what's happening. There are people being set free by the authority of Jesus Christ. We want to see this. And it's a beautiful scene. Can you imagine how exhausting it must have been for Jesus? There he was laboring late into the night. Why? Why? Because he had the authority to help people and he wanted to. Isn't it a beautiful theme we see all through this passage of Scripture we looked at here this morning? We see the authority of Jesus as the pure, spotless Son of God in the, in the wilderness and resisting the temptations. We, we see Jesus in all of his authority preaching the gospel. We see Jesus in all of his authority calling men to follow him. We see Jesus with authority over demonic spirits, and we see Jesus with authority over sickness and disease. Friends, don't you want Jesus to show that authority in your life? You ever seen the bumper stickers that say, question authority? Well, sometimes that's awfully good advice. But not when it comes to the authority of Jesus. Maybe that's been the problem with some of you. You've been questioning his authority. You know, there's no need for you to question his authority. Let his authority be real in your life, and you'll see the great things that Jesus can do. So friends, maybe this is your morning. Maybe this is your day. Jesus wants to come and show his authority in your life. Maybe you're, you're bound up by sin and you're not like Jesus was resisting temptation. You're giving into it all the time. The authority of Jesus can make the difference in your life. Maybe you haven't been a follower of Jesus, but now you hear his word calling to you and the authority of Jesus can make the difference in your life and draw you into being a follower of his. Maybe you're harassed by demonic spirits and you just need some freedom. You need some liberty in your life from this. The authority of Jesus can make the difference. And even if you are sick, diseased, the authority of Jesus can make the difference. And so why not? Why not come and submit yourself to the authority of Jesus? Why not ask others to pray for you? And say, I want to see the authority of Jesus exercised in my life. That's a good thing, isn't it? His authority is authority we never need to question. We want it to be real in our lives. And so let's pray and ask him to do that, that exact work. Lord God, we ask you this morning that you'd make the authority of Jesus more and more real in our lives. We need to see it, Lord. We need to see this great authority active in our lives. Father, we need to see it so that we could overcome the, the, the pressure and the temptation of sin. So that we could be true followers of Jesus so that we can live our lives free of of demonic oppression, so that sickness and disease, Lord, as as you grant it, would would be taken away by the authority of Jesus. Oh, Lord God, do this great work. We love you. We praise you. Bring each life here this morning under the glorious authority of Jesus. Lord, 
If you wanted to hang out with the wild beasts, I'm sure you want a fellowship with us. So receive it, Lord. And even as the angels minister to you, so we want to minister to you in praise and in song. Help us to do that, Lord, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.